Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. So, hi, I'm Bill. I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, good to be here. Good to see everybody. Welcome to anybody who's new or newish. Um, there's quite a few people here I know. I used to come to this meeting pretty regularly, especially when I first came in. Of course, when I first came in, there were a lot fewer meetings, so I had to go to this meeting in a certain way. Uh, and it was one of the biggest meetings in Berkeley at the time. Uh, and since I'm being recorded, I guess I have to tell my A story. So I will try to do that. You know, and, and I want to thank Nyla for asking me to speak. It's always an honor to be able to speak at an OA meeting. Um, I am also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes when I say the word program, it just kind of is intended to encompass both of them. I, I've been a member of Overeaters Anonymous since 1990. So that's 32 years. And I've been continuously abstinent for a little more than 13 years. And I'm truly grateful for that, you know, because being into food is not fun. Um, believe me, and I'm sure you all know that. I grew up in the Midwest in the 50s and 60s. I was raised in Gary, Indiana, um, from a typical 50s Gary, Indiana family, I would say. Um, we did have our little quirks. I think I, I, um, I wasn't, I didn't feel abused or anything as a child. I just felt a little bit more uninvited, I guess is a good way to put it. You know, we, we were five people who gathered for dinner every night, my two sisters and I, and my father and mom. And other than that, we didn't have a heck of a lot of other interaction, you know, and so we all kind of tried to fend for ourselves. And I was also very shy and, and anxious. Anxiety was my number one emotion as a kid. And it lasted pretty much throughout my teenage years. And I'm really grateful that I really don't experience that much anxiety anymore. It's, it's pretty astonishing. Or, or maybe I do, and I just am not aware of it. But then again, if I'm not aware of it, I'm probably not experiencing it. So that is a wonderful gift of the program. And, and we were very well provided for. We were a little, lower middle class family, but my mom always put three great meals on the table, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was of the age where, you know, you pretty much had bacon and eggs for breakfast every morning. And I'm still alive, so it can't be that bad for you. Um, we don't give out a medical advice here, but that's my personal opinion. So, uh, and, and I didn't have a lot of problems with food at, as a kid. I, I think if, I, if any eating behavior manifested itself in my childhood, it would have been, I was extremely selfish around my food. You know, I didn't particularly want what was on your plate, 
but you were never going to get anything that was on my plate. I mean, that was just, that was it, you know, it was mine. And I ate like that. There were a couple incidents that kind of predicted that I might have a problem with food later. I remember um, my mom used to take my sisters, my older sister and I to the movies on Saturday. She would just drop us off and we would see a double feature and then she would come pick us up, you know, and it was great back then because you could actually do that with kids who were, you know, nine and seven years old. So it was a different world. But one time, for some reason, I had managed to save up 40 cents and I ended up buying four boxes of popcorn during the first feature. And I wouldn't share any of it with my sister. I just kept stuffing it down my face. And at the intermission, I just leaned over into the aisle and threw it all up, you know, and, and that was quite humiliating. It was even more humiliating for my poor sister who had to go get the manager and ask him to call my mom to come pick us up. And I took a little bit of abuse for that, but deservedly so, you know, and I, you know, it's, I talk about the four boxes and a big part of my illness is I'm a volume eater, you know, um, if I have to choose between a restaurant that has really tasty food and a restaurant that has a lot of food, but is less tasty, I will almost always choose the food, the, the restaurant that has a lot of food, but is less tasty. Um, I am not a connoisseur, to be quite honest. And that's the way I am, you know, I'm wired that way. But I progressed, you know, through high school with my shyness and my anxiety. I was very fortunate to get good grades. And back in the Midwest in the 50s and 60s, that was my shield um, against being considered different, you know. I couldn't make friends very easily, but I got good grades, so I was normal. I couldn't talk to girls, but I got good grades, and I, but that, so that made me normal. And, and that was what I sought, was that feeling of normalcy. I just wanted to be like everybody else, you know, and I very rarely felt like I was. Um, so anyway, I took off for college. I did have one other unpleasant eating incident. I probably had a few others, but I remember I, I had more than two, definitely. One I was thinking about sharing and one that popped into my mind was my younger sister once put all these chocolate ornaments on the Christmas tree and I proceeded to eat them, you know, almost as she was putting them up. Unfortunately, fortunately, it was my older sister who was considered to be the overweight person in the family. So she was considered the culprit, you know, and I certainly didn't say anything. So I probably made amends, at least for some of the stuff like that that I did. Um, so I went off to college. I ended up really getting into alcohol much more than I got into food. I was a, a puking drink and drinker. And when I got really dizzy from drinking, I would make myself vomit. You know, when I think about it at times, I probably vomited 150 times from drinking in my drinking years. Um, 
And that was, and a lot of that times I made myself do it by sticking my finger down my throat. You know, and I remember coming into OA and being aghast at the bulimics. But I thought, well, Bill, you kind of did the same thing. You know, so I am no longer aghast at the um, bulimics. So I went through college. I, hitched, I flunked out of college. I hitchhiked out to Berkeley from South Bend, Indiana. And, it, and I got here in 1970. And I, it was really a good example of God looking out for me. I had $80 in my pocket. I just took off from Indiana and ended up getting picked up by three people at one o'clock in the morning in Lincoln, Nebraska, who were going to Berkeley. And I was like, they said, hop in. I said, I'm going to San Francisco. They said, hop in. We ended up getting an apartment together. We got jobs with the Census Bureau and I've been here ever since. Um, and, and I love the Bay Area. You know, it's really kind of interesting being here. Tad expensive, but it's interesting being here. And so, I drank and did, did drugs throughout the 70s, and then I got sober in 1982, and I found the food, you know, and I ate, and I ate, and I ate, and I gained 70 pounds my first two years clean and sober, you know, and I used to tell people that I needed the first 35, and I didn't need the second 35, but later on, I realized that I needed the first 20 and I didn't need the next 50. And so I have to admit that, you know, so I was pretty much 50 pounds overweight. And, and I fought it for six years after that first two year period. I remember I would like head home from work, pick up a bag of potato chips, you know, a, a big one, 16 ounces of sour cream, some onion soup dip and take it home and an 18 ounce ribeye. And I would take it home and eat it all in one sitting. And then I would tell myself, I'm not going to do that tomorrow. And I would do that tomorrow. You know, and there was that sense of complete, you know, that point of pitiful, incomparable, incomprehensible demoralization that hits us at some point in our recovery, in our eating, I think, and in our recovery sometimes. So I did this and I did this, you know, for that two-year period, and I kind of topped out at about 235 pounds, uh, but continued to eat like a maniac. I remember I had a job where I would go on my break to get a donut and a cup of coffee at the coffee shop a block away, and I would always try to ask for a donut and a cup of coffee, but what came out of my mouth was, may I have a cup of coffee and two donuts? You know, and every time I did that, I did it for three weeks, you know, and that ends up 30 donuts in a three week period starts to add up, you know, and it did. So after two years, I tried to do something about it. And and what, one of the things that happened was I, I actually I broke my arm ice skating and I went to a doctor and I hadn't been to a doctor in ages. And he took my blood pressure and it was pretty high. It was like 160 over 90, I think. And he said, well, I'm not going to put you on medication, but um, I want you to come back in six months and I want you to lose weight. So I said, okay. But when he said, I want you to lose weight, 
what I heard was ugly group fruit, you know, because the words lose weight could not be processed by my brain. So I came back in six months and I weighed exactly the same. And he had the same prescription. Now, I'm not going to give you medication, but I want you to lose weight and come back in six months. So I came back in six months and I weighed the same. And I did this over a five year period, you know, and um, and then when I was about to t- turn eight years sober in AA, I made a promise to myself that I would lose 20 pounds in that three month period. And a month before my anniversary, I got on the scale and I weighed exactly the same. And that was the point where I really felt that point of incomprehensible demoralization. So I came to AA, OA, and this was in 1990. And I thought I would hate it, but I actually liked it quite a bit. Um, I was really touched by the intimacy of the shares. And I really clammed on to what people said. I heard people say that meals have a beginning and an end. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And I heard people talk about how they had three meals a day and life in between. And I thought, that's a good way to look at it. You know, others just talked about weighing and measure, which I never did. But I heard somebody once say that he wrote down his food at night and then he called it into somebody else. And that, that was his way of surrendering. And I think, you know, that's a really good idea. So I started doing that. And I kind of did that in tandem with another person <coughs> and did this for several months. And I started to lose weight. And I lost like two pounds a month over the course of you know, two, two and a half years. And I got down to my goal weight of about 180, you know, 175 to 180. And I felt so much better. It was, it never occurred to me that I was walking around with three bowling balls, you know, that I did need. And that makes you tired, you know. I remember taking naps every night after work. And then once I got to my goal weight, I didn't take, need to take naps anymore. So that was a benefit. So I've been here since 1990. Um, I haven't been continuously abstinent then, but every single one of my abstinence break were something very simple. You know, they, they, they lasted one meal. You know, it was, I, I'm very... I really strongly recommend that you have a very clear definition of abstinence. I I don't like waking up in the morning wondering if I was abstinent. So either I was or I wasn't. I don't think- That's 15 minutes. Thank you. And so I kept showing up and, you know, and there were about 15 times during that period where I just took an extra bite after I told myself I was done eating. And for me, that's a break of my abstinence. So I would start counting my days over again. Um, And some people are a little bit more lax. Some people are a little bit more strict than I am. But it worked for me. You know, this this is a a program that it's a very much a trial and error kind of program in some ways, you know, because you often don't know what it's going to work for me, for you, until you do it. Um, Some things you will know that won't work for you without having to do it, such as, you know, eat a cake for breakfast, 
um, which somebody just told me that they did recently, a newcomer, and I, I had to laugh at it. But that's what we do. I don't meet that many people who get sober, I mean, abstinent immediately, but I know a lot of people with really long term abstinence in this program, and it works. And I did the steps, they did improve my life. I was reflecting on step eight. Well, I read step eight and nine last night to find some inspiration for my chair today. And it was really interesting talking about forgiveness. Um, and I'm very much a grudge holder. And I've learned to forgive in this program. And, you know, it makes life so much easier. You know, they talk about alcohol being a social lubricant. Well, I think forgiveness is the bigger social lubricant because when I would get mad at somebody when I was in my disease, that was it. You know, I never spoke to you again. And you're going to get mad at everybody at some point. So that's a lonely way to live. But, you know, we have all these twos. They, there's that wonderful line about they lay these kit of spiritual tools before us, and it's up to us to pick them up, you know, and, and there are a ton of tools to pick up, and forgiveness is one of them, and it just makes, and partly I'm bringing this up because I've re really been upset with somebody that I knew for 30 years, and we were pretty close friends, and she said something extremely offensive, and I haven't talked to her since, and I've been enjoying that grudge to some degree, but I've, I've kind of, it's kind of gotten to me. So I've forgiven here her, but I don't feel any obligation to be friends with her any longer. Um, it was too unkind a thing to say. And one of the things they talk about in the A-step writing was that, you know, we don't have to apologize for how we feel, or we don't have to tell somebody uh, about that. And I just decided, you know, I'm going to forgive her, but I don't want to hear from her again. And, and I think that's good enough. You know, that's, a, that's one of the most underappreciated phrases in Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous is good enough. You know, I'm not necessarily rigorously honest with you, but I'm honest enough, you know, and I'm not, I didn't do a searching and fearless moral inventory, but I did it searching enough and fearless enough moral inventory. So as a lot of times it's tempting to beat yourself up in this program, but we don't have to do that, you know, and uh, it's better to just come and share at a meeting. And, and that's what I do rather than beat myself up. So with that, I will close. And I am so grateful I had the opportunity to do this. I got something out of it. I don't know if you did or not, but I hope you did. And I, I will recommend forgiveness as a topic.